Hi, it's Patrick here. And Cartoon Queen Carol, or Carol Hills as she's conventionally known, she's in the linguistic house today. That's reason enough to sing. We're talking India in the pod today. We're talking Africa too. Places specifically where English touched down, where it took root, and now it won't go away. For example, there's a presidential election coming up in Ghana. And why are the candidates debating only in English? The president of Uganda speaks perfect English, but the language he's just co-written a thesaurus for, it's his native indigenous tongue. We asked why in India, where there are so many people who speak two or more languages, why is there so little bilingual schooling? Throw in a bank robbery gone bad and some food idioms in Carol's best Swedish and Polish. Et voila! Carol, you're back. It's been so long I can hardly recognize you. I'm different. You... <laughs> I've changed. <laughs> I was going to ask what you did for the summer, but you've probably forgotten what I've you forgotten. did. <laughs> did you have a good fall? I did. I love fall. There's somehow the sense of anticipation in the fall, even though what you're really anticipating is a really long winter. Yes, like <laughs> darkness and snow and cold. I have, I have all these fantasies about embracing winter. We're going to go skiing, alpine, and cross country. We're going to make snowmen. It's going to be great. And then whenever it happens, I'm just wear long underwear for six months. <laughs> 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 ah, now I know why we've picked so many stories out of Africa yeah, and South yeah. Asia. Yeah, now yeah. it's all coming clear. Well, let's get on to uh, the first story that we're going to talk about. Story number five. Carol, it's yours. Yes. This is a story out of South Africa, which has been in the news lately. Some of our listeners might recognize it. And it springs from an ongoing scandal, sort of scandal, around South African President Jacob Zuma. He has a home in his home area of Nakandla, which is in his region of KwaZulu-Natal, where he's from. Mm -hmm. And he's, let's say, just done a major renovation to his home, like a, about $26 million renovation. Oh, like a politician's renovation. Yeah, mm. big. It's sort of modeled on a game lodge, South African game lodge. There's like a dozen thatch-roofed buildings they're in this rustic style. There's homes for each of his four wives. There's a medical clinic. There's a security barracks. There's all this stuff. Now, he says his family paid for it all. And the only thing the government paid was the necessary security costs. But some have investigated it, and they're in, there is indeed bulletproof glass. There's some sort of barracks where there's security people. So there's sort of investigations. President Zuma has come out and said, Listen, I can't vouch for the cost of this security stuff, blah, 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 blah. So the media has gone nuts with it and opposition politicians, and they call it Zumaville or Nkandla Gate. Nkandla is the place where the home is. Mm -hmm. Now, in recent weeks, the South African Broadcasting Corporation, which itself is a sort of controversial organization. It's sure. government-run broadcaster. It was government-run under apartheid. It's government-run post-apartheid. And there's a feeling that it is a mouthpiece for the government in many respects. Absolutely. I, mean, I remember when I was there speaking with a couple of people who'd been run out of the SABC because for one reason or another, they had quarreled with the powers that be politically. Yeah, there's sort of a history of getting rid of some political commentator back in Thabo Mbeki's presidency. Somebody was gotten rid of because they were critical of Mbeki. So the latest thing is around the 
House in Ancondla. And the news director at SABC said that the reporters, the presenters, the hosts, they can no longer use the word compound or homestead to describe the home in Ancondla. Mm. And they can no longer use the term Ancondla gate, a <laughs> term that has developed, or Zuma, Zumaville. <laughs> well, I, I guess I can understand Ancondla gate and Zumaville, but even then, I mean, it seems a little silly that they would. But compound and I mean, well, what, what well, you have just described sounds. It precisely like a compound. It well, sounds like Kennebunkport. It sounds like what the Kennedys placed down on Cape Cod. As with many things in South Africa, there's a history to the word. And that's mm. what the government is saying. They're saying it smacks of the apartheid era and the word compound was used to refer to the place where black migrant workers who worked in mines lived. So it has this kind of apartheid era flavor to it and it's offensive. I see. And so homestead is the same way. So that's what they're saying. And Zuma's press person just said this immediately, criticized the opposition leader for using the term homestead and compound and is turning it into what some people say. He's playing the race card. He's bringing up these things. Of course, this place is a compound. It's got, you know, 12 homes on it. It's got a giant fence around it. The government is saying, no, you can't use those terms. But of course, Zumaville and Incondligate, they're just sort of saying these, these are offensive. You can't offend the president. Have they come up with suggestions as to how you describe a very large residence? Yes, they have. And this is what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to call it Zuma's Incondla Residence. That's it. That could just be, you know, a condo. That's, that's what we're talking about. But it's interesting. There is not universal ridicule about this ruling. Even the media community itself is split. And I can't tell whether it's along color lines or what based on the reading of it. But some say, well, it is an offensive term. It's loaded. And they shouldn't use it. And others are saying, oh, come on. So it's a mixed bag. But in my, my other, the other hat I wear, of course, is around political cartoons. Yeah. And it's generated some good ones. Oh, and, has, yeah. and one of them that was great, just a couple days ago, this cartoonist Germ, that's his cartoon name. And he did one, and it's a cartoon of a Google search. And the search words in the in the window are President Zuma's and Condla residence. And so the results say, your search for President Zuma's and Condla residence did not match any results. Suggestions. Make sure the SABC hasn't censored you. Try Incondlegate. Try Zumaville. Try President Zuma's compound. And it goes on and on. It's hard not to think this is just kind of not not a step in the direction of tolerance. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to s- slice it any other way. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you can't describe a, a home accurately in terms of its size and how it may have expanded considerably <laughs> <laughs> recently since its <laughs> occupant started running the country, then, as you say, that's not a good sign. Well, on that note, let's let's move on to the next story. Uh, story number four is where. Going down, is that right? Do, do we, is that the way that we did it last time? You see, it's been. So I think long. this time we're just we going to we're just a random order that we thought worked, and we're just going to end with something lighter, as as broadcasts or narrowcasts often do. Wow, that sounds like a great idea. Let's start all <laughs> over again. On to the next story, a story with no number whatsoever, um, but we're remaining close to South Africa, actually, uh, Uganda. The president there, um, President Museveni, he's a bit of a linguist. I mean, he's been running the country now for since 1986, and I guess he perhaps he's run out of other things to do. But he's just <laughs> co-authored a thesaurus with three academics, a thesaurus for the 
I'm not entirely sure about how the politics of this plays out, but it's for two languages, or there may be two dialects of the same language, or、mm. there may be two separate languages. Anyway, the thesaurus's title itself seems to fence it a little bit because it has both languages listed and then a little slash between the two. Those two languages we know them as Mkure and Kiga. They're both Ugandan. Bantu-based languages. They both have quite a few speakers, two million plus in the case of Nkora, and four million plus in the case of Kiga. They have ninety percent, roughly, lexical similarity. So, yeah, they pretty much are mutually comprehensible. And what's the lingua franca in Uganda? Is it English? Well, this is part of why this thesaurus has come into being. There are two lingua francas in Uganda, or at least two official languages, and that is English and Swahili. There are a ton of other languages.、Mm. I mean, absolutely loads of tribal languages, and then there are a lot of these related languages. A lot of them are, are from the Bantu family.、Um, uh, there's also Arabic, which is spoken by like, a large、mm. proportion of、uh, Ugandan society. But Museveni made the point at the launch of this thesaurus that these. African languages have been played down for far too long by Ugandans themselves, and the chieftains who had to give up a lot of rights to British colonialists and others who came in, all too easily surrendered linguistic sovereignty. Didn't really put up a fight. I'm not sure if you can go back to that time and put all the blame on on. Yeah, it's you know, complicated because it, you're not cutting off every single thing when you become independent. There's infrastructures. There's a certain Class of people you have to bring along with you. I mean, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Museveni seems to be making a play, a、mm-hmm. big play, right now to raise the status for indigenous languages, have them written. I mean, this is really, really key because most of these are, are languages that are by and large spoken, very, very rarely written. Introducing a thesaurus is obviously going to encourage them to be written, to be studied, and maybe you know poetry, novels, all of that kind of stuff. But are these, are these languages that are spoken by native speakers in their homes, but simply are not in the public space? That's exactly what they are. I, and actually, well, I'm going to save my fire on that because there's another story I'm coming to in a, a different continent later on. It's got a great quote that very much echoes that that thought. But yeah, these are languages that are largely home. Based languages.、Hmm. Another thing that Museveni had a go at was Swahili itself. He says Swahili, because Swahili has been kind of bigged up, to use an LEG phrase,、um, <laughs> uh, is being bigged up somewhat in, in sub-Saharan Africa as an alternative to English and French. Uh, an Arabic as a lingua franca that's a more of a African-based lingua franca, and there's no question of doubt that Swahili, in terms of its use as often a second or third language for a lot of Africans, it's spreading. But Museveni says it's just not rich enough. It doesn't have the degree of complexity and expressiveness that some of these. Indigenous languages have, and so until Swahili, well, <laughs> until Swahili sort of, Swahili?、Um, I'm、does. sure he does. But until it, it takes in more of these expressions, and it, it's not going to really do it. So why was Kenya able to preserve the status of Swahili when it became independent in in a way that was different than Uganda? Was it different decisions, or was Swahili so widely spoken among Kenyans at the time of independence that it was just a natural? Because you know it has huge status. 
Was it was there a more monolingual scene in Kenya that made Swahili able to? Could have been, although I, I think there are a number of minority languages in Kenya that are stuck in the same way as those minority languages in in Uganda, and that Swahili has been very useful to a lot of African leaders because it's been a language that they can point to that is African mm. and at the same time does not divide people. And some of these tribal languages do. So there was a little bit of an update to this. It seemed as though the timing for this launch of the thesaurus was auspicious or maybe planned this way, but it came just right about the time when the Ugandan Education Board was deciding that they're simplifying the number of subjects that you can take at school. There was a lot of talk of them getting rid of some languages, even getting rid of Arabic and also Luganda, just in favor of English and Swahili. So Hmm. there, there was talk of this ahead of time. As it turns out, they're not going to get rid of those other languages. Maybe this presentation of a thesaurus of fairly widely spoken indigenous language by the president himself, who, as we noted, has been president for a very long time, um, uh, maybe that had some bearing on this. Well, it's interesting because a story out of Ghana is kind of a nice, it dovetails nicely with that one, which is, you know, Ghana was a British colony. It was, I think, one of the I think it was the first African country to become independent. The very first, yeah. And um, and they're in the middle of a campaign right now for a new president. There's going to be an election in December. And there was an interesting opinion piece. A woman was sort of annoyed because the presidential candidates are debating on television to try to persuade people of their worthiness in English. Now, mm. English is the official language in Ghana. But this woman was saying, the woman who wrote the piece, my grandmother can't understand English. And she's sitting home trying mm. to learn about these candidates, and she doesn't know what they're saying. And she said not only that, they're not only addressing the entire nation in English, they're being judged in large part or in some part by the quality of their English. They're being oh, that's evaluated yeah. by their English skills, but lots of people in Ghana don't speak English, so they can't understand them. And so she is making the case for Twi, a language that many Ghanaians speak. It's the language that's largely spoken or majority spoken in the south, the mm-hmm. southern part of Ghana, which is the most populous part of Ghana. And But she says, in the north, you can get by in Twi. So she's saying, why aren't these debates in Twi? Isn't it the case, though? I mean, I saw a couple of blog posts in the last few months that there is a dissatisfaction with English because it is a reminder of the colonial past. But at the same time, Twi is associated with a tribe or a number of tribes and is disliked by other tribes. And if Twi was suddenly sort of promoted, this would be seen as the promotion of that particular tribe and their political interests over and above other Ghanaians. And and so therefore... English, despite the kind of hold your nose colonial past, is more neutral. But on the other hand, there seems to be rising questioning of English. Yes. Like we we've got to have something else eventually. If we want to kind of make it to yeah. the next level, we've got to come up with some other language that will unite our people that isn't simply English. Well, she she alludes to that, but her point is more people's intelligence Mm -hmm. is measured and assessed in Ghana by whether they speak English. And she thinks that that's a problem, that, you know, the hangover of colonialism or, you know, kind of self-induced hangover is that English is still 
respected more than Ghana's own language. And if they have a language that the majority of people speak and the rest can understand and get buy-in, why aren't they embracing that? It's, it's a tough argument to make because the other side of English, which we'll get to in my next story that I'll just jump right into now, is countries in Africa, again, former colonies, in this case of France, who are dumping French in favor of English as the official right. language. A lot of it has to do with just the change, the perceived change in the value of English, the end of the Cold War. There's lots of things going on here. But a place like you know Gabon, mm-hmm. West Africa, the guy who runs it is Ali Bongo. Mm-hmm. And his father ran, I can kind of say that, he kind of ran Gabon for decades. Mm. And then a couple of years after he died, Ali Bongo, his son, took over in 2009. So He's sort of an interesting position. He he likes to court the elite of France and hang out and cultivate that side, that residue of colonialism. But at the same time, he's decided that Gabon would be better with English as an official language, yeah. that its people would grow up with more opportunity, that the average salaries of people who speak English as a second language well or as a first language are higher, that they can that Gabon could be part of trade groups, that this would be a good thing. And he's looking to Rwanda because Rwanda decided in 2008 to drop French in favor of English. Right, yes. And so there's several years now of experience to evaluate how that's going. And it's a mixed bag. And Rwanda decided in 2008 and they implemented it in four months. Mm -hmm. So suddenly all these teachers across the entire country who grew up speaking French and are there to teach French, they have to like learn. They had a six-week English immersion course and then they're teaching kids. A couple of years on, the kids aren't learning very well. So they've had to change it from full immersion to the first three years that kids come into the school. They're using their home language. And um, and then the third year, they start learning English. So now, A lot of it in, in Rwanda isn't perceived to be in part because the French government was perceived to be on the side of the Hutus in the Hutu-Tutsi uh, war and genocide. And, and now with the Tutsis back in control again, uh, they've pursued anti-France policies ever since and yes. dropped French. I remember we had a a piece from Jeb Sharp about it in the pod when that happened in, what did you say, 2008? 2008, they decided, and in 2009, implemented. Yeah, and it did seem very sudden and, and very odd. And then more recently in the pod, there was a piece from Mary Kay Magstad about Chinese being introduced there as, as China rolls into <laughs> Africa. Um, and so you have this country here that's just roiling linguistically with all of these outside languages. So, you yes. know, French, no, don't like you. English, we want it, but we don't have the teachers, you yeah. know, with the skills to teach it. Chinese, oh, let's that give that a go because, yeah. you know, maybe we'll get yeah. a contract. But they still, they're not making Chinese the official language, whereas English. Right, right, right. And they're on a massive recruiting drive to get teachers there and they're trying to provide more training. But you're right. There is a sort of an overlay of the tough relationship between Rwanda and France, partly because of the genocide and partly just kind of eh, they're just tired of it. I mean, the French role in, in so many parts of Africa, there's very kind of mixed feelings about it. There's this great quote this Senegalese writer said, nothing will change until Africans stop behaving like the horse and letting France be their rider. Mm. And there's this sense of they've just got to get out. That I mean, yes, they've been independent from France for many years, but there's been relationships, financial relationships, economic relationships, political relationships that maintain a colonial veneer that a lot of 
West Africans, it's usually West Africa, are just, they're done. Yeah. They're just done. And I think the symbolism of having French language is something they just kind of, strangely, they think embracing English, at least they're getting out of the What's going to happen French, to but I don't know. French, though? I mean, French is just like overwhelmingly spoke. What is it? The n- it's the ninth language in the world in terms of numbers of speakers right now. Number yeah, nine. and it's, it's like 80 or 90 percent of French speakers are in Africa. Yeah. So, you know, you take those away and woof, French, you know, is more like German then. It just becomes the language of a, a large European nation. Yeah, and the, and the percentage goes down every year of the number of worldwide mm. French speakers. And La Francophonie, the organization around the French language, they strategically had their annual meeting in Africa. And there's a whole lot of outreach to Africa and a sense of, we, you know, we've really got to hold on to the language. And one of their pitches to do this is, we're the language of the rights of men and human rights and all that. They're pushing that. Mm. But there's a lot of um, pushback on the part of a former French colony saying, eh, yeah, yeah, right. We well, didn't see too many of those rights. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Without being uh, facetious, I, I do have to say that I do like French-speaking African countries for, you know, the food, the yeah. fashion, the music. I mean, there were certain things that... Uh, I'll tell you, the, anywhere the, the that, French went, even if they spent like a half hour there, they yeah. leave croissants, they leave architecture, they leave novels, they leave really good food. I mean, we, you, you, whether you go to like, you know, Lebanon or, you know, Egypt or anywhere they went for any period of time, Vietnam... They they make a they have an impact they on the have. food and on the culture. It's amazing. It's yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Uh, the English had a very different impact on the food. <laughs> 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 they nearly ruined Indian food, but the Indians have <laughs> made a comeback. <laughs> wow, let's drag ourselves away from Africa, eh? Um, as as interesting as that is, I mean, I I'm, well, actually, just before that, it just seems that Africa is just this. more than anywhere else in the world, it just seems to be grappling with these issues of which direction shall we take? I think these kind of discussions are really good in Mm. in these African countries. It's, it's, you know, it's it's an assertive, confident argument about who we are and what we're going to do, and we're not going to be pushed around. Right. And if those discussions were had 20 years ago, it was by far fewer people. These seem to be sort of front and center now. Yeah, and you also have, I mean, the big tectonic shifts of the past 20 years, end of the Cold War, advent of the internet, technology, China's expansion as a big power and therefore its inroads. There's just a whole lot of different players. There used to be two players. Neither of them were in Africa, but they controlled Africa. That's crazy. (laughs) Nuts. Okay. That's our our lesson about Africa today. (laughs) That's Africa. So let's go on to India, Carol. Mm. And it's interesting after all of that conversation and people in Africa speaking in more confident ways about some of these language issues. In India, this has been going on for quite some time. And, of course, India is famously so multilingual. It's just endless. They're up to their eyeballs in languages. Yes. And even if there aren't quite so many as there used to be. There's still plenty to go around. And I was struck by an article in the Times of India. I think it was an interview that they did with a very well-known playwright over there called Girish Karnat. And he's got this thing about bilingual education, the fact that India, despite all of its languages, does not really have a tradition for bilingual education, which is very strange. I mean, it struck me as as odd. That is odd. Again, maybe there's some colonial issues there. He certainly believes that it has got an Hmm. awful lot to do with a European 
education model that the Indians have taken well, on. Well, they would have also inherited that from, I mean, it's something that would have been left over from the British. Absolutely, yes. And as we know, the British don't learn other languages. Um, <laughs> but in particular, down in the south of India, where people generally speak so many languages. I mean, I, I heard about this in a previous pod from Michael Irad, you know, the guy who wrote the book about hyperpolyglots, mm-hmm. uh, Babel No More. He did a chapter on this where he profiled a number of people who speak fluently five, six languages, something like that. And, you know, there's one language for home. There's one language to speak to certain servants. There's one language to speak in the marketplace, another for school, another for college, and you know, you name it. There's another for government, etc., etc. And so, depending on the setting, just switch languages. And and the point that this playwright, Girish Khanad, is making is that with this wealth of linguistic proficiency, why on earth is it not encouraged more at school? I mean, you know, perhaps the language of the marketplace, which is presumably a much lower status language than that of, you know, higher education, that can be promoted a little bit by introducing it in elementary schools and and actually teaching in those languages. And it, it does seem strange that there isn't more of what in the United States is called the dual immersion model, something like that. It is, because it's such a huge country, and the language, I mean, there's hundreds of languages, but there's also like about 20 or 30 that are pretty dominant. I mean, that are have huge numbers of speakers. Yeah. So you would think there would be bilingual education in different parts of India. And I think that probably, and we're we're on the edge of my knowledge here, but, but, um, but, but I'm guessing that the further away from the big cities that you go, the more likely it is that the instruction is done in local languages. But, you know, down in the South, it's somewhat different because there is a resistance to Hindi. There is great tradition of people speaking several languages and and they want to assert their identity through their multilingualism to a far greater degree than in other parts of India. Hmm. Uh, And so it appears to me that this is partly where this guy is coming from. India isn't just an incredible, thrusting, gigantic economy. Yeah. But, you know, 20 years ago, different world. And the way in which some things have been laid to waste by colonialism and then other things have resisted colonialism is a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, you have, as far as Carnad is concerned, you know, language isn't the only thing at all. He, he cites architecture as, as something that just got utterly destroyed. You know, you have your temples, but that's just about it. Other, apart from that, they just they took on yeah, European architecture. And, you yeah. know, that's any new buildings. They're new Western buildings, mm-hmm. right? But on the other hand, you know, film is something really, really different. Bollywood has managed to resist uh, Hollywoodization, uh, you know, because it tells a story in a very different With way. Music too. It uses the use of mu- music. Is it huge. uses music mm-hmm. differently as well. I mean, music in in the grammar of film, the music plays a very very different role, and it has managed to resist Hollywood in a way that, say, you know, European art cinema has been far less mm. successful at doing. Anyway, that's India for you. New confident India. Okay. Um, done with India. Done with <laughs> India. Okay, now. It's not done with us, but we're done with it. <laughs> okay, on to something that we're never done with, right? Food. Food. Tell food. us about food. Well, it's just a fun story about figures of speech and idioms that involve edible idioms. Like edible idioms. Mm. Phrases that involve food and how they compare and contrast around the world. 
when we were debating what stories to talk on this podcast, I said, um, I was talking about one story. I said, I, th- I don't think there's enough meat on the bone. And, you know, you didn't hesitate. You understood what that was, you know. We moved on, yeah. <laughs> we moved on to more fatty subjects. <laughs> so there's all sorts of those things all around the world. Like the Germans, they say, Alles hat ein Ende, nur, nur die Wurst hat zwei. Everything has an end, only the sausage has two. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, this being The Guardian, a, a, a British newspaper, would have to cite something in German with the word <laughs> sausage in it because <laughs> that's what Germans eat. And there's also, like, the English phrase, you know, I have a bone to pick with you. In um, the Swedish, they have, I can't pronounce this right, so I'm sorry, all Swedes, which is, you have a goose to pluck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. The thing, like, you know, the English expression, that's a piece of cake. That has equivalents in other languages. In Swedish, again, forgive me, Swedes, they say, let someone plot. It's as easy as pancake. In Polish, they have a I'm sorry, oh, no, Poland. No, we can't. <laughs> Muslim, a roll with butter. <laughs> that sounded vaguely Arabic. <laughs> Here's a great one. Okay, you know, in every culture, there's people that have good fortune. They're blessed mm. with good fortune. And they're constantly landing with their bums in the butter. <laughs> Is that British? Have you heard that? No, but it sounds British, but I've never heard it. Or if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, the Spanish say, con un pan bajo el brazo, with a loaf of bread under her arm. And in, in, in Cantonese, they have one, and it translates, being the first to have the soup. Mm. And of course, the Swedes again, glida am pa or sliding in on a shrimp sandwich. <laughs> An an open sandwich, no doubt. Oh, here's another German one. Okay, this one is about someone finding a task that's challenging or when life's in general a bit bit much. They might say, das ist kein Hundeglicken, which is, it's not like licking honey. It's the equivalent of the English, it's no picnic. Mm. And lastly, Australia. When you know that whatever's going to happen, it's not going to end well. Okay, this is this is an Australian expression. You're getting the rough end of the pineapple. Oh yeah, that's good. The rough end of the pineapple. Is there a rough end? I thought they, I thought just the, the whole of the outside of the pineapple is pretty exactly. rough, isn't it? And then when you make up make a big fuss and you're just being a pain, you're carrying on like a pork chop. <laughs> What's a pork chop ever done I to don't anyone? Know. The, the food stuff, I th- of course, my mind has gone completely blank, but y- you come across those things constantly when yeah. you're learning or trying to learn uh, another language. The food idioms are just, they're everywhere. Yeah. They're, <laughs> so Harry Truman, yeah. he's the author of a famous one. Oh, yeah. What did he say? He said, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Oh, he said that, did he? Yeah. What was the context? I think he was probably talking about just politics or or. You know, maybe it was. He was also the buck stops here. Oh, right. He, he famously did that. But he wasn't in the kitchen at the time. No, I think I think it was. You know, he's also the one. You know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. You know, he was. There was. Oh, he he was had a lot of. Fra- he had a lot of phrases about. You know, don't whine if you're. Right. You know, president or politician, just deal with it and shut up. Right. You know, it's like you know, if, if you're a rock star, you can't complain about life on the road. You just got. <laughs> Just turn the volume up to 11 and a half. Lie back and think of England. 
I, I'm just thinking of um, in Danish. There's got to be a whole load in Danish, but I can't think of any at the moment. But one of the first things they try and make you say in Denmark, and this is not an idiom, but it is. You know, they will say it's the most difficult thing to get the pronunciation right, and it's this Danish dessert that nobody ever eats. So you can never actually put it to any use apart from to try and make other people say it, and then you know laugh. What is I'm it? Saying, is it just gross? No, it, it's Holkolmefløpo. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't sound <laughs> good. Like you're going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> and what it means is red. Kol is like porridge, uh, gruel, red gruel with cream on. That's a dessert. Well, I think the red is raspberry. That oh. Danish listeners can set us straight here, but I think it, I, I was never given holkolmefløpo. I was. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so I, I, so it would be like a porridgey thing with raspberries and cream. It's like that a doesn't virus. sound too bad. I know. It, whenever I try and sort of show off and speak Danish to people when I was younger, when I you know, I, I sort of go back to England and say, I, I can speak Danish, listen to this and all of this. They all sort of walk away like I, like I had a virus. <laughs> the only sad. thing I can see is saying is Danish is. Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> oh, here's one more, one more. Soren Kierkegaard. Yeah. And and okay, this is a sort of a Northern Europey thing. Mm. Okay, if you're not having a good day mm. and you're in the Netherlands, you might describe the day as "as in herring naar de sloopstaren," which is translated. It's like staring at the sloop like a herring. I don't know why wow. that would be a bad day. <laughs> or looking a bit glum. <laughs> I hope our listeners write in with their own food idioms. Every language has just got like a million and one of these things. I think I'm going to go back and and read those Tingo books. You know, we had we had that guy on, Adam Jaco de Buono. He's written these two books that have all of these sort of hmm. you know weird phrases from other languages, which sometimes we would borrow from them for the eating sideways uh, segment that we would do. And there were tons of food things in there. I'll see, I'll see if I can post some of them online. I just want to briefly segue to something completely unrelated but related because it has to do with food. That's what we always do in the pod, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to throw this out there. Mm. I, I, I may be repeating myself. The whole image of like slipping on a peel of a banana. Yeah. Since when did anybody slip on the peel of a banana? It's an image that's permanently out there, yet it never happens. Who is slipping on a peel of banana? I finally tried it. I put a banana peel on the floor to see what it was like, and it turns out it will slip. It has You have to have the pulp side down. You take the, <laughs> you take the, the banana peel, you spread it out. The pulp side down, if you step on the top, the skin, outer skin, it will slip. But who does it? Like, it's this image we still have. It's oh, completely archaic. Nobody slips on a banana. Nobody has banana peels on the floor to slip on. Who does? Where did it come from? <laughs> I want our listeners to answer. I love the fact that you tried it. And now you've sort of upended the image somewhat, too. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, I, you see it in cartooning. You see it. You just It's this image that's been there forever yet. It just has nothing to do with reality. Yeah, and a figure of speech. I mean, the banana peel is thrown around like it's a horrible I mean, political who, who, cliche. Who discovered it in the first place? I mean, I had to try it. You have to do it step by step. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. We have to stop. So uh, just before we go, you've got a story, don't you? Don't you have a Well, it's related to thing? your final funny little story about the robbers. Am I doing the robbers or you? You were doing the robbers. Am I, doing I was going to I was going to drop in a pithy anecdote afterward. Oh, okay. Pithy anecdote. Okay. <laughs> so it was going to be spontaneous and you were going to laugh, but I don't know. 
I can't it? remember the anecdote. If well, you I told didn't it tell you. Oh, well, that's I, good. So, so I, I was going to surprise you. You know what? I can spontaneously laugh then. That'll be good. <laughs> okay, so this is a story. I tweeted at the time and, and it got a bit of action. I, I think a lot of other people were tweeting it as well. It, some of it is a bit unclear, but it's really good. It's in Florida. And there was an attempted robbery at a Chinese restaurant in Orange County. I don't know where that is. Is that Orlando or somewhere? I don't know. I have no idea. And it went wrong because the employees in this Chinese restaurant did not speak English. And so they were unable to <laughs> um, understand what they were supposed to do. I just was like, hand over the money or you know, whatever it was. Or where is the till? They like, thought they were the ordering a particular dish and they didn't know what to <laughs> One robber put a gun to the head of one worker and forced him to the ground, according to police deputies. Um, so they got frustrated, but nonetheless, they still laughed. <laughs> okay. I guess, you know, um, guns don't speak all languages. Yeah. And, and, and uh, okay, my pithy anecdote mm. is in the town that I live in, yeah. a number of years ago, a guy went in mm. to the local branch office of a yeah. bank and went up to the teller and slipped a note under. And... He was there to rob the bank. But the teller said, I can't read your writing. <laughs> he, he, couldn't, he couldn't read it. The teller couldn't read it. He said, I, I can't read that. What, what do you want? <laughs> so, so he just, just took off. off. <laughs> They just I, I don't really know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so we we have two sets of frustrated robbers here, both of them going to some kind of evening class as a result of this. One to you know, learn basic Cantonese, the other one to learn how to write well, clearly. Well, in, in the same branch office of a bank uh, a couple of years later, mm. like last year or so, a guy went into the bank and ordered everybody in the bank into the safe. So they all went in with him and he wanted to rob him. <laughs> and somebody in there just got out their phone and texted the police and that was it. Oh. <laughs> it was over. Oh, <laughs> he just said, we're in a safe. <laughs> and the police were over for the matter of seconds. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Clearly you have to have some intelligence to rob a bank. Yeah. A- At least legible handwriting. Legible handwriting, yes. You have to pay attention to your three R's <laughs> at school. And it would help if you were going to a bilingual immersion school or something. That's right. Well, I think that we need to wind up Mm -hmm. now, Carol. Or wind down. Or wind down. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing this is a language podcast. I don't think I can wind up any higher or tighter. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're Uh, welcome, Patrick. Nice to be back. Please come back again soon. I will. It would be great. I will. Um, Tell me what's been keeping you busy with the cartoons. Oh, those are cool things. What I've been researching and doing, and it will roll out in the next couple months, is I am putting together slideshows focused on specific countries and their cartoonists' images of American presidents since World War II. So a lot of them end up being English-speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with the archives in Canada. I'm dealing with the Australian Cartoon Museum, Israeli Cartoon Museum, a bunch of Cuban cartoonists, Canada, a whole bunch of places like that. So. It's been really interesting to see these images. And some are predictable and some are not. And I'm trying to pick cartoons that reflect how that country perceives the U.S. Mm-hmm. or perceives the particular president at the time, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, Truman or Nixon or 
LBJ or Reagan. So it's, it's been it's been really fun. Really interesting to think of how a country views through cartoons because cartoons themselves, I mean, my image of a cartoonist is something of a rebel who endlessly pokes fun at his or her masters. Yeah. And so in a way, I imagine a lot of what you're seeing is people who are depicting their own governments, their own leaders, relationships with the United States and criticizing their own leaders for those relationships. Usually it's criticizing. It depends on the country. Usually it's criticizing the American leader. And um, and also just discovering it, just a ton of great cartoonists, many of them no longer alive. And um, in the case of Cuba, a whole different little subplots. Castro enlisted a whole bunch of cartoonists as propagandists. I mean, every gov- lots of governments right. do that. And so you had this whole crowd that were there in the early 60s to their whole job was to promote Cuba and to diss the U.S. and and all these kind of things. And they're really interesting. And then you have a whole other crowd who, in the past 20 years or 30 years, a lot of the Latin American cartoonists whose work I feature are actually Cubans who left Cuba. Mm. And there's that whole crowd. And they're in their 40s, typically, close to 50. And then there's younger ones, too. And the whole Internet era around the country has revealed a whole different crowd of of cartoonists who only post, say, on their Facebook page. They don't print anywhere else. You just learn about all these these people. It's really cool. I'm very excited. Oh, that's me too. I can't wait to see that. Oh, and sooner than that, we will do an interview with a guy who has just published a book looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict through political cartoons. He's really looking at kind of the role of political cartooning on the intifada. Or, you know, and sort of in how it related to various things. And so I'm excited about that. That book's just coming out. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. And there'll be a slideshow and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we should look out for that at theworld.org slash cartoons. Carol, thanks very much. Thanks, Patrick. Cartoon queen Carol Hills. I'll post links to all the stories we discussed at theworld.org slash language. You can also get that via the World in Words Facebook page. And for many more language-related stories that this pod never gets to talk about, well, I do tweet a bunch. My Twitter handle is Patrick Cox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. See you next time. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on churning till the butter comes. Keep on pumping, make the butter flow. Wipe off the paddle and churn some more. Little boy blue, come blow your heart.